Now, if you look at the parent that owns GE-wide appliances, and some of your listeners may not know that it's the Chinese, and it's Hire that bought this proud American icon that was ailing out of GE, and Zhang Rimin, who runs Hire, has turned his entire company into now a set of ecosystem micro-enterprise communities. Why? Well, because, you see, there's this interesting problem of your fridge knowing that your milk is running up. And the question is, who's going to be uh, ordering the milk? Who's going to be running the digital interface that your appliances have, Internet of Food or the Internet of Clothing? And right now, firms like Hire, who are in things that you would have said are boring, traditional, mundane, are starting to think about how they can create these webs of relationships that are going to make them both more appealing to the customers and also that are going to ensure that customers get stuck in and that they are able uh, to uh, ensure that they can manage the relationship with the customers. Hi there, this is David Knorr. Welcome to the third season of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm so excited after years of research and interviews and due diligence on this topic to finally be able to publish Curvebenders this year. It'll be my 11th book as a follow-on to Relationship Economics and Co-Create. Curvebenders, in essence, are your strategic relationships that enable your non-linear growth in the future. Our research points to 15 forces that we believe will dramatically impact the future of how you'll work, how you'll live, how you'll play, and how you'll give. The global pandemic is just one example. So how will you remain relevant if more disruption will come at us more often with potentially far greater impact? In each episode, I want to share with you insights, great ideas from guests I've invited to join us, as well as practical ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, your behaviors, and most importantly, what I believe is your biggest asset, which is your portfolio of relationships. I call those relationships your curve benders. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. Nor here. I want to tell you about another podcast that I'm involved with that I think you would get a lot of value from, particularly if you're in sales, sales management, or sales leadership. It's called Tech Sales Insights, hosted by me and longtime friend and former client Randy Seidel. Now in our second season, each Wednesday, we interview chief revenue officers, VPs of sales, channels, and even high-tech sales performers about what they're seeing, what they're thinking, and what they're doing differently to drive profitable growth, attract exceptional talent, and past experiences that have had a profound impact on who they are and how they lead. The lessons are invaluable, whether you're just starting out in sales or mid-career or have been in revenue generation business for some time. Get Tech Sales Insights where you consume your podcast or learn more at salescommunity.com slash events. That's salescommunity.com slash events. Welcome back to another episode of the Curvebenders podcast. My guest today is Michael Jacobitis, Professor of Entrepreneurship Innovation Strategy from the London Business School. Michael, welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. 
It's great to have you. For those that may not know as much about you, would you kindly start with a brief background, your current role, realm of research and focus? Sure. So I'm a professor at the London Business School, where I teach strategy, and I've got a chair in entrepreneurship and innovation. And I look at value migration, at industry change, at the emergence of digital platforms and ecosystems and what you can do about it. And I also like taking my research and applying it in practice. So in addition to being a professor at LBS, I am an academic advisor to the Boston Consulting Group. So I advise their uh, Henderson Institute, which is their own thought leadership, as well as a global advantage practice and shaping some of the more cutting edge new things that they're uh, having their consultants do. I'm the lead advisor of a boutique consultancy firm called Evolution Limited that focuses on projects on these topics and how to navigate all of these complicated, changing digital contexts. And dabble in other things. I'm the chief expert advisor in the Greek Competition Commission for issues relating to the digital economy. And I've been involved in some of the regulation and also visiting scholar in the New York Fed and all manner of things. So I like keeping myself busy, perhaps a little too busy. Sounds like a lot of great, great activities, a lot of great research going on. Can you talk a little about your passion around ecosystems? Why do they move you what are the key trends you see in them and how do you believe they'll evolve in the future of work? Absolutely. You know, I started looking at ecosystems uh, a few years ago because I couldn't understand what the heck the term meant. My research was looking at how value migrates and how industries change and people were speaking about ecosystems. And I'm like, what exactly is it and how is it different from other structures that we have? And I started spending time doing research and looking at the emergence of these ecosystems and saying, boy, these are starting to really change the way we organize. And that became a thing. And I guess that much of this research became much hotter with the growth of big tech that has managed to grow on the back, not of only its own prowess, but by building these ecosystems of collaborating firms. And there's two things happening. You've got multi-actor ecosystems, i.e. you've got firms like Apple saying, you know what, I'm not going to do everything. I'm going to have an ecosystem, not a supply chain, not something I do myself, an ecosystem of collaborating parties that are going to write apps so that I give to the customers what they like. But there's also multi-product ecosystems. And you've got Google that moves from search to search and storage, and from that to Android, and from that to Maps, and then with Fitbit Health, broadening up. So you've got these interesting webs that companies, and especially a few leading companies are creating, and that they are basing the success on. And that is a thing. And that's what excited me. I wanted to understand what are the different roles in ecosystem, who sends to benefit. And for the many firms that are not the big tech, what the heck can they do? So that's some of the types of questions that I'm looking at. And I, I try to both figure out what companies can do in order to be successful and also pragmatically for the companies that are not um, necessarily the big tech, although I have worked with some of the big technology companies too. What are the new rules in terms of strategy? What are the things that they should be on the lookout? And what we, can we learn from the companies that are more successful? I want to build on that. So obviously, this makes a lot of sense for tech companies. 
How about the the non-traditional or the traditional firms that are non-tech, you know, whether manufacturing or professional services or, you know, how do you see their strategies evolving to integrate more ecosystems in their environment? Well, I think that the number of companies have had to ask themselves this question now, especially with COVID-19, because I think that what you've seen with this crisis is that it has taken these existing trends that push to digitize the push, to connect and build these uh, webs of complementers and has made it a necessity. But, you know, take companies that have traditionally focused on industries as boring as white appliances. Now, if you look at the parent that owns G white appliances, and some of your listeners may not know that it's the Chinese, and it's higher that bought this proud American icon that was ailing out of GE. And Zhang Rimin, who runs Haya, has turned his entire company into now a set of ecosystem microenterprise communities. Why? Well, because you see, there's this interesting problem of your fridge knowing that your milk is running up. And the question is, who's going to be uh, ordering the milk? Who's going to be running the digital interface that your appliances have? Internet of food or the Internet of clothing. And right now, firms like Hire, who are in things that you would have said are boring, traditional, mundane, are starting to think about how they can create these webs of relationships that are going to make them both more appealing to the customers and also that are going to ensure that customers get stuck in and that they are able uh, to uh, ensure that they can manage the relationship with the customers. Are ecosystems a form of innovation or how are they different than our traditional perceptions of, of innovation within a company? Two things. I would, the first thing that I'd say is that ecosystems are a form of organization and ecosystem essentially form the basis for strategy. So ecosystems are things that rely on collaborations with outside uh, partners. But where it connects to innovation is that you want to build ecosystems primarily because you are not able to do everything yourself and you want to have a given set of companies you work with to come up with new innovative ideas. Let me give you an example. I was working earlier in 2020 with one of another traditional old school company, NL. NL is the former energy monopoly in Italy and now one of the big global energy companies. What NL is doing, in addition to doing all kinds of cool stuff in terms of alternative energy, is that it said, I want to find ways of taking my assets and engaging them in a more innovative way. What do they have? Well, guess what? They've got lampposts, and lampposts are important. So NL owns around 3 million lampposts. So now they're trying to say, how can I be more innovative in terms of the value add that I can provide to these public authorities that I work? I've got my anchors, and around these anchors, around these lampposts, let's think about whether we can provide more than lighting, and perhaps more than architectural lighting. Perhaps it's Wi-Fi, or it's stuff that facilitates e-buses. And then you're like, well, for me to be innovative, 
perhaps I shouldn't only rely on the stuff that I do in-house. Perhaps I should rely on having strategic relationships. Or let me tell you another the story of another company that I worked with last uh, year, Massimovoli, which is uh, Spain's uh, telco, fourth, but the most rapidly growing and one of the most profitable telcos in Europe. And they said, well, Let's try to figure out whether we can create some ecosystems of partners in order to offer packages that are going to make customers happy. And they realized that they could start adding some value by saying, I'm going to be offering some value to older customers, and I'm going to have this digital interface that will integrate something that is going to be easy to use, one device where you can have a septuagenarian or octogenarian push a button, call the doctor, push a do- button to know the weather, connect it with a bracelet so when they fall down, there's an immediate alert so that you know that the people you love are safer. So this, I think, helps us be more innovative and helps us integrate good new ideas and find new ways of adding value to the customers. One of the fascinating things you mentioned was is that this idea of really evolving your strategy based on ecosystems heavily depends on strategic relationships. Can you talk about where do relationships create the most value and impact for an organization, for a leader? There's this, Michael, perception that, you know, not invented here, right? We have to do it ourselves. We have to own this IP. We have to own this strategy. You're advocating the ecosystem is actually stronger if you reach beyond your organizational kind of perceived walls. Uh, yes. So I, I totally agree that they are. And I'd say that there's, there's two things that they help us understand. They help us see that even the stronger companies in the world do not try to do everything themselves, and they strategically use these ecosystems. Now, this differs, and there's different strategies if you would like to create an ecosystem around you, i.e. you're like, well, look, I want to be the orchestrator at the center of the ecosystem and build a web of relationships because together we can create something that adds new value to the customer, perhaps also broadening up. Or I may want to be creative in having a strategy as a partner because the other major thing that's happening is that the world is changing around it. And if you see what happened, especially now with the pandemic, You see that digitization and the growth of some of these big tech companies means the distribution is now entirely different. And you were asking a moment ago about examples for something which comes from traditional industries. Well, I'll give you one really traditional industry in a really traditional country. In Wuhan, the epicenter of the first wave of this pandemic, there was a company that is a traditional Chinese cosmetics company called Lin Xinhuan. So as we discussed in a recent Harvard Business Review with Martin Reeves of BCG, what happened with Lin Xinhuan, which of course couldn't sell anything because as a result of the pandemic, people didn't go to shops. And the way that you sell cosmetics is by in-store advisors that help you see and feel and sense what are the products that are being offered. Basically, they told them, you know what? You now will look at where things are sold. Where are they sold? Through the big digital platforms, including Tencent's WeChat, which is this Chinese amalgam of Facebook meets Amazon. And what happened is that Lin Xinguan said that I'll now turn all of my store employees to online influencers. 
and by turning them to online influencers and working with these major ecosystems that exist, it was able to double the sales in the year of the pandemic. So I think that uh, you are able to try new things once you realize the world of opportunity, whether you want to create your own ecosystem or if you think, hey, this is a new world and I need to adjust and adapt and see how I can engage and combine with the current distribution channels and the current digital channels in order to find new ways of adding value. I love unique and interesting ways to add value. One of the things we try to do on the Curve Vendors podcast is to constantly try to equip our listeners with the best lens to see the future. Michael, what are the top insights that you're sharing with your global clients, with global leaders in terms of how to look at how to begin to bring ecosystems into their environments in this new year? Well, the first thing is that you need to know what your strengths are and what you're after. I think that the problem that I see is that some of the advice that people give is not good advice because it's, oh, look at what Google and Facebook are doing and emulate them. And that's almost like saying, hey, look, LeBron James threw some great shots from over seven meters. You should do that too, because you're going to be a great basketball player. That's getting causality wrong. They are able to do it precisely because they have some unique strengths. So rather than simply trying to say, hey, there are some big players that emulate ecosystems, I think there's a bit more detail in saying, let's try to figure out how you can best compete in a world which is becoming digitized and what are the opportunities. And these are different, both the opportunities and the challenges are different, whether you're a big company trying to say, I've got my own assets, I've got people, I've got some skills, how can I leverage them in a digital context, or if you're a new venture? And sometimes you can see ventures that simply use creativity. So I can give you another example of a curveball. Think about what happened when one of YouTube's creative souls, a guy called Mr. Beast, said, you know what, we'll now create Beast Burgers. Now, this guy is an influencer. But what he realized is that as a result of the pandemic, we now have black kitchens, kitchens that don't serve restaurants, but that cook for those that have delivery, sometimes even for restaurants because they are using them to a white label. There is a great ease of connecting with delivery companies like Grubhub or Vault or eFoods, depending on where you live, or Uber Eats. And he created 300 different locations without owning a single asset. So I think that what you need to look at is how the landscape of opportunities changes. See what it is that you're bringing to the table and don't assume that you have to do it all yourself, but assume that clever design can make up for traditional might. And by the way, this is something that, that affects not only you, but your competition as well. So the final thing that I'd say especially for the more established firms, is that the nature and the shape of competition is going to change pretty damn fast. One of the key opportunities for PNL leaders, I believe, is to develop a, a more proactive culture of experimentation. Michael, you're talking about taking a lot of sacred cows, taking a lot of our assumptions and what's made us successful for so many years and really looking at those very differently. How would PNL leaders begin to do that? Again, particularly in a mature company, in a mature industry where we've just always done it the same way. 
Absolutely. And I think that what you see is that in this world of ecosystems is a much greater ease of reconfiguring and also scaling up. And Mr. Beast is as good an example as any. So the problem here is that organizations face what I like to call organizational pathologies, things that left to their own devices, organizations will consistently do wrong or poorly. So one of the things that we know that they don't do well is that they don't tend to allocate resources well. Any research that you see in terms of resource allocation shows us that firms don't tend to look ahead and they try to allocate capital on the basis of what they have done or of what the political dynamics, especially when you have a multidivisional firm that needs to have different areas. So what I would suggest is that you should really start by a very simple diagnostic. Try to do even a simple two-by-two and try to say, well, okay, let me try to see what is the relative position today and to what extent this is viable in the future and see what is the capex and the investment needed as well as what is the cash that each business consumes. And then try to see whether you can be more radical moving ahead. The problem is firms don't do that. Anytime that it comes to budget and negotiations, it is always a political game. So I think that trying to be a little bit more forward-looking is super important. It's also important to try to engage people outside your own organization. And you're trying to expose yourself, ensuring that you get those who can help you understand that your version of the world is not the only version of the world. Now, you see, many of these habits were okay because competitors were as bad as you are. The problem right now is that in this much more modular digital world where competition can come from the left field, you are not safe simply because the other companies are not as quick because you're going to have people who are coming up with new ideas that disrupt the way that your business is organized. And that is one of the cool things about ecosystems, because when you start looking outside, you are forcing yourself to be more adaptive than you would otherwise be. A lot of those new entrants don't carry the baggage that you do, right? They haven't been in business for as long as you have and haven't done the things the same ways. They can start from a much fresher start. So you and I talked about curve benders as really strategic relationships that unlock your nonlinear growth. In thinking about your own career, are there some curve benders in your life that have shaped the person, the leader, the researcher you've become? Well, okay, complex question. So first of all, if I, if I think about myself today, and if I think about where do cool ideas come from, I'd say breadth and depth. What I mean by that, I think that what I'm doing right now, pushing the boundaries of academic research, and I edit some journals, I publish in not only the academic, but the practitioner journals, I advise consultancies, I engage in regulation around digital, as well as sit on advisory board of different uh, firms that are smaller. And I think that the value that I get is that by being able to take the perspectives of different players with different objectives, it helps me be much more reactive. 
And in terms of depth, more recently, the work that we've done with Evolution Limited and having a team of really cool people, you know, one of the projects had the former innovation minister and the guy running at the World Economic Forum for Europe and consultants and uh, junior technologists allow you to create a much more interesting perspective of the world. So I think that breadth in terms of what you do and depth because you uh, push yourself to give a deliverable that crosses a number of different areas is great. Now, if I think about people who have really affected me at a personal level, so you think about myself as a curve bender, I'd probably first say, unsurprisingly, my advisor when I was doing my PhD, Sid Winter, terrific chap at Wharton. And the reason is that I think that he showed me, one of the best scholars of innovation, that being creative and being systematic are not opposing forces. And that you start by having a really cool idea and then you try to work out what it means and test it against data. Second one that I'd say is more recently, after I had developed all kinds of cool ideas academically, it's a couple of coaches that I work with, and Ian Locke and Alan Cooklin. And I think that what I took from them and what I think made me much more effective is that in my business, you tend to broadcast much more and listen much less. And the more senior you get, the more insular you can become. And I think that having someone who asks you to just stop talking and take a breather and listen at what people are saying and try to figure out where they're coming from and have the humility of understanding that you may be missing part of the technicolor beauty of the world when you don't. It was just terrific. It was refreshing. And I think that that, that was a great catalyst that, that happened just you know, a couple of years ago. And, and I think that helped me reframe a number of the things that I did. And uh, life has been much more exciting since. And finally, I think that, you know, the people that you engage with, whether it's the students that give you perspectives that uh, you didn't have and they stop you and make you think, or, you know, your wife that makes you think about being a better human. I mean, I, I think that we sometimes tend to want to look only at people who are further away. And I think that influences that can help and shape you and bend you as a career are often surprising clears by. To build on that, what do you believe are some of the attributes that really create curve benders in the lives of others? Michael, you, you touch a lot of people, you impact a lot of lives. Those that really take your counsel, take your ideas, implement them, and are profoundly better off, not just in what, what they accomplish, but who they become. What do you believe are some of the attributes that makes a great curve bender in the lives of others? I think that Genuine curiosity and interest is perhaps the most important attribute that I can think of. And I have been humbled to see some of the most interesting leaders that would not take just five, 10 minutes to see, oh, what's the sort of most recent idea, but really take the time to figure out what it is that you're saying. I spoke a moment about, ago about uh, Jean Grumin, the CEO of Hire, one of the biggest uh, industrial companies. And you know, when I went to Tsingtao, I was really surprised to spend about an hour and a half with him, with a translator, uh, speaking about all manner of research that he had read and discussing which way we should think about the world, not 
just to validate what he's doing, but genuinely to ask whether there are things that he had missed. So I've seen that with leaders who have got the strength of taking a step back and asking some of these questions and trying to figure out what they're missing. And I think that on an individual level, I, you know, success to me, as I have seen it, is this unusual combination between humility and I don't know whether I'll call it conviction. Perhaps someone could almost call it arrogance. And it's humility because you know that you don't have all the answers and you need to hear what others are saying. And conviction, sometimes perhaps arrogance, to say there's something that I have that can add value. But that this doesn't make you lose sight of the fact that great ideas are outside and that you want to learn. So listening rather than just communicating your own success is probably the closest I'll come to giving you my view of what makes for a great leader and what makes for someone who's able to be successful, whether that's an entrepreneur or whether that is a leader of a traditional firm that needs to think about all manner of politics. What's the next chapter for you? What are some of the top aspirations you have in this new year? Well, the first thing is to move beyond what I've done and try to see, to work on the implications. So, you know, there's work that I want to do in looking at how organizations can be structured in order to be more responsive to change and uh, think not only about the strategic directions, but about the willy-nilly of uh, making it work and what advice we can give that's going to be useful. Similarly, I've been a bit involved in regulation, thinking about the specifics of making a regulation that's responsive and helps build a better society. And perhaps also uh, spending some more time on some pet projects that are in the intersection of uh, strategy and society. So to give you one example, now during COVID, I've been staying in my native country, Greece, And I've been concerned that although the economy, battered as it was from COVID, is starting to pick up, there's a risk that tourist development may be so big that it may undermine some of the natural beauty that exists here. The question is, how can we find a framework that helps us balance the benefits that investment gives with the possibility of preserving the environment and how can we convince the locals that this isn't just some money people interest in keeping idyllic vision of the past, but that it can add some real benefit. And it's been fun trying to be in the intersection between uh, advisory, between policy, working now with the tourism minister and working with uh, some of the local consulting leaders like the, the, the CEO of Accenture and others in Greece right now to create a project that will have some impact that may hopefully help preserve some of the things that I cherish. So turn my passions into action. So in, I guess, all manner of ways, try to both learn more, but see whether uh, the ideas can have some impact. And uh, that's going to be more than enough to energize me and keep me happy. Brilliant. Can't wait to learn more. Uh, What's the best way for our audience to learn more about you, your work, and get in touch? There's a new website, so www.jacobides.com 
jacobbidbes.com, J-A-C-O-B-I-D-E-S.com. And on the advisory side, you can take a look at www.evolutionltd, like limited.net, N-E-T, to see what we do in that regard and any thoughts and reactions. would love to hear them and happy to send and share some of the more recent research. Thank you for being our guest on the Curvebenders podcast. Thanks so much. By the way, three quick points, new season and a renewed commitment to our digital footprint, blog, newsletter, social media. We turn the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles, so you can find those in our completely revamped new blog forthcoming at norgroup.com slash blog. Number two, we're completely revamping our newsletter to make them even more practical and relevant with both a free and a premium version. Check it out at norgroup.com slash newsletter. Lastly, we want to bring the content from these episodes to life. So whether it's a Twitter chat with a guest or live streaming through our Facebook and YouTube channels, or even more recently, a Clubhouse audio conversation, check out our various social media channels with the hashtag Curvebenders for the latest update. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with Michael Jacobides. I was fascinated by a recent McKinsey research article, a study that showed the top 30 U.S. companies are preparing for the future. And when they were surveyed, they were taking bold actions across nine imperative and the top growth driver for 83% of them was to build ecosystems. So as Michael alluded to, here are three comments uh, that he mentioned during our interview that really resonated with me that I thought you could really think about and hopefully take some action on. Number one, ecosystems are a form of organization and the basis for strategy. So how will you evolve? How will you, you, your team, your organization, uh, really create that next wave of your growth, hopefully profitable growth. And I believe ecosystems uh, could be one of the strongest answers. So what's your ecosystem? Uh, Who are the relationships you need to bring into a community, bring into a fold that dramatically amplifies your value and the value that you create for others? Which leads me to point number two. How can you be more innovative in the value that you add? What else could you do for the relationships that are most critical to your success? Not just external to your organization, but also potentially internal as well. Could you be a purveyor of relationships? Which leads me to number three. You don't have to do it all. Who are those strategic relationships that can extend your reach, extend your ability to create not just incremental, but exponential value? Ecosystems are the definitive illustration of the network effect, that when you grow through an ecosystem, you're not going to grow incrementally, you're going to grow exponentially. That's also a a huge definition, a huge push for non-linear growth in yourself, in your team, in your organization, in your value add. By the way, we're completely revamping our website this next month, and I've been saving up all the show notes from these podcasts 
to really show you and share those with you in more in-depth articles. So I will post them in both our forum, our private online community that you can find at norgroup.com slash forum or in our blog, norgroup.com slash blog. Again, norgroup.com slash community or norgroup.com slash blog. I'm so grateful for all of our listeners on the Curve Vendors podcast. I'd love to hear from you with ideas, with suggestions, with guests you'd love to hear from at this intersection of future of work, strategic relationships, and nonlinear growth. You can simply email podcast at norgroup.com or follow us on various social media channels where I use the hashtag Curve Vendors to keep you posted on our latest progress.